This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The last time the Taliban controlled Afghanistan, the world of technology looked pretty different. The internet was still in its relative infancy. The hottest tech products were things like MySpace and AOL Instant Messenger. And companies like Facebook and Twitter didn't even exist, let alone were there presidents and prime ministers using social media to govern entire countries. But today, it's really common for all kinds of world leaders to be on those platforms. And now that the Taliban is back in power, social media companies have a decision to make. Do Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube ban the Taliban because of its controversial past? Or do they let them run their self-proclaimed more peaceful new government at the risk of legitimizing a historically oppressive group? Joining us today to help explain is Vox foreign and national security reporter Jen Kirby. Hey, Jen. Hey, Shereen. How are you doing? Good, thanks. So, Jen, can you give us a rundown of what's been happening in Afghanistan in the last two weeks? Yeah, so in some respects, this kind of starts a little bit earlier, which is the fact that the United States had planned to withdraw from Afghanistan, and they set the deadline to be August 31st. And so in the past few weeks, they've been packing up and pulling out troops and preparing to leave. But as that was happening, the Taliban was going on basically this this route of Afghanistan. They were taking over provincial capitals, and all of this was happening really, really, really fast, much faster than the United States government at least said publicly. And so two weeks ago, the Taliban reached Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, where the government is located, and the Afghan government collapsed. The president, Ashraf Ghani, fled, and so essentially the Taliban became the new people in charge of Afghanistan. And since that happened, it's been a chaotic and desperate rush to evacuate uh, United States citizens and our Afghan allies who helped us in the 20-year war in Afghanistan. So it's been a mad rush, mostly around the Kabul airport, to get people out before this rapidly approaching August 31st deadline. Today, as we're recording on Thursday, there was an attack on the Kabul airport um, with casualties. The situation at the Kabul airport was already extraordinarily volatile, um, but it got even more tense after the United States government started warning people to stay away because of fears of a terrorist attack. And on Thursday, those fears came true when explosions at the Kabul airport killed at least 12 U.S. service members and 60 Afghans. It was the bloodiest day for the U.S. in about a year and a half and just a truly devastating turn of events in what was already a desperate and chaotic week. It really adds another shadow to the U.S. withdrawal as the August 31st deadline approaches. You wrote this great explainer, Jen, which we'll link to in the show notes, about how the Taliban has and hasn't changed over 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit about those changes? Yeah. So obviously, most people kind of reference the Taliban because of the September 11th attacks. They were in charge of Afghanistan then and were giving safe haven to al-Qaeda. And so when the United States went in, they fairly quickly drove the Taliban from power. 
But in the past 20 years, the organization has basically regrouped and they learned a lot of lessons, so to speak, from their downfall. And, you know, they've become more savvy. They've coordinated better. They've been better at intelligence gathering. They've gotten better at technology. And most critically, they've become a bit more pragmatic. They've kind of learned how to play the game, so to speak. They've, you know, reached out to international partners. And they're also very aware of their image, which is why, you know, they are ostensibly letting the United States and others evacuate people. They want to create this impression that they're a little bit more moderate. This goes to their rhetoric as well. Obviously, the Taliban was known for its very kind of repressive policies, particularly against women. And it's tried to kind of make some assurances that they won't be as radical this time around, although the verdict is very much still out. Yeah. And your article gets to this really interesting point about what you were saying, how the Taliban is getting better at public relations. And a lot of that happens on social media. But Jen, is there a reason that we should be skeptical about how the Taliban is presenting itself as this kinder, friendlier new group? As a couple of experts told me, the Taliban wouldn't be the Taliban if it didn't embrace this ideology, the strict interpretation of Islam. And so the idea that they're going to dramatically or drastically change isn't really true. And if you listen really closely to what they say, you know, they often qualify their comments about, you know, women's rights or human rights with, you know, as long as it's in accordance with Islamic law, which tells you pretty much all you need to know there that this is not exactly going to be, you know, a new liberal Taliban. But the reason they want to try to portray themselves that way is because they want the support and the legitimacy of the international community. They don't want to be the pariahs they were 20 years ago. And so they're trying to kind of give the impression that they're a little bit more moderate in hopes that that will earn them, you know, a place in the international community and the support that comes with it. I think that this rebrand of the Taliban is so interesting because a lot of it plays out on social media, which I've been following and reporting on, and it puts these companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, in a conundrum. Because if they take a harsh stance on the Taliban, the reality is, that's now the ruling government de facto of a country. And these social media companies risk seeming like they're silencing the online presence of an entire government, not just one politician like Trump. But if they allow the Taliban to gain more of a social media following, they could essentially be enabling the ascension of a regime that has supported terrorism, that is still hostile to women, that is really thought of as a brutal force still by by a lot of people. So, you know, we're seeing kind of these companies scramble to figure out what they're going to do. Facebook and YouTube have banned the Taliban, they said, but we know from reporting by the New York Times and other outlets that People are still using Facebook-owned WhatsApp groups to coordinate Taliban communications and government. We still know that there are viral posts on all the social media platforms, regardless of their rules. And then you have Twitter, which actually still hasn't banned the Taliban at all. And in fact, the Taliban's lead spokesperson has a following of something like over 300,000 people on Twitter. So I'm curious, Jen, you know, what you think about all that and you know, how important you think social media is for the Taliban to gain legitimacy. 
I mean, the Taliban certainly thinks it's very important. You know, there was a press conference early on in when the Taliban had taken over and the spokesperson had been asked a question about, I think, freedom of speech or something. And he specifically flipped it back and said, well, you know, the social media companies need to think about freedom of speech, which we know because we've had the debate here. That's not quite how it works. But the the Taliban really sees this as a critical platform and a way to get their message out, particularly to the wider world. And so the idea that that might be cut off from them might also be part of the reason why they're being very, very careful in this last week or so, because they don't want that opportunity, so to speak, to go away. Right. And it's it's fascinating because in some ways, these companies like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, they hold the same, if not more power than sometimes other governments in whether or not the Taliban will be accepted and will be able to kind of speak on an international platform. And, you know, I talked to these companies and I said, how are you making this decision process? They're basically looking at how much political recognition the Taliban gets in the real world, especially from outside organizations like the UN and NATO, but also countries like the US, China, and the UK. And uh, I don't know, Jen, if you have the latest, but last I checked, China seems like they may actually recognize the Taliban, right? Yeah, it looks like China has certainly made those, I don't know, overtures, so to speak. Um, Obviously, as far as I know so far, that hasn't actually happened. But in some ways, the international community and social media companies are kind of dealing with something similar, which is like, if, for example, China recognizes the Taliban, well, what does that mean for, you know, other governments? Do they want to be able to influence the Taliban? Do they want to, you know, make sure that some of the efforts that they invested in for 20 years are still beat up? And that might require some degree of cooperation. And so the social media companies as well have to decide, well, if other governments like China are recognizing the the Taliban, and that's sort of giving it international legitimacy, then we might have a weaker ground to stand on when it comes to, you know, dealing with them as an extremist organization. So it will be really interesting to see how sort of the international politics and the social media politics intersect. Well, obviously, this is an incredibly fast-moving story, and it's hard to predict what will happen. But based on your reporting, what do you think we should be looking to uh, coming out of Afghanistan the weeks ahead? And what will this mean for, for its people? Yeah, I mean, I think right now is the immediate crisis still of getting all of these people in Afghanistan who want to leave out. I, I do not think that's going to be a possibility. You know, we don't even have real clear estimates on, you know, how many people are trying to leave or wanting to leave. And then there's also the increasingly volatile situation. Officials have said the risk of uh, more attacks is still there. And so how will that complicate the mission of the United States? And what will that mean for its long-term legacy? And once it leaves, what will the Taliban do? How will it behave? Will it be able to gain that international legitimacy? Or will it go in the other direction with very uncertain consequences and potential suffering for the Afghan people? I'm Shireen Ghaffari, and this is Recode Daily. This episode was produced by Sophie Lalonde and engineered by Christian Ayala. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links to articles by Genemy. And as always, you can go to recode.net or vox.com for more.